0: And thanks to Cry Malt, this is Radio Brews News. My name is Matt Kirkegaard, editor of Australian Brews News, and as ever, because beer is a conversation, I'm joined by my good friend and colleague and regular co-host, Pete Mitchum. Pete, welcome back.
1: G'day, Matt. G'day, listeners. How are we all?
0: Uh, well, given this isn't a live recording, I'll answer and uh, tell you that I'm fine. Thanks for, very much for asking. That's,
1: That's uh, what our, our last live podcast wasn't good enough to uh, justify a follow-up. Or Look, was it just logistics or...? No, no,
0: no. Look, we had great response to the uh, to the live broadcast we did during the uh, final countdown of the Hottest 100 on Australia Day. Um,
1: I know you're I guess... not supposed to blow your own trumpet, but as my grandfather used to say, well, no, no other bass is lining up to do it for you. Um, but no. the, the numbers were, were pretty good, I thought, for um, for the live side of things, including the, um, the number of listeners who sort of tuned in for a fair bit of the, the countdown particularly obviously towards the end i thought it was really great that um brennan varus rang in that we were able to speak to guys like Corey crooks uh to steve jeffers and to all the other guys uh you know that we were able to um to get to, to chat to um and then the chat room itself in the the website part of the the live podcast we were getting plenty of uh feedback as we were going along lots of questions coming in and comments and all that sort of things uh, and look, at, as, as we say, you know, the, the whole conversation sort of thing, we we seem to get a bit of engagement, which was um, which was good.
0: Yeah, no, look, it was great, and it was something that we we'll, we'll certainly do again. I don't know that there's much call for a, you know, regular live podcast um, format because you know we we do this at odd hours, which probably uh, don't suit most people. Um, but people obviously enjoyed listening in. It was Australia Day. Uh, there was the hottest 100 music uh, countdown on and uh, people were out with their friends and yet we still had a very healthy chat room and people listening. So people obviously like doing it. And uh, yeah, so I think we'll um, have a couple of uh, chats with uh, particularly some of the bigger name international brewers to let uh, local um, craft beer people uh, interact live in that format. But it'll be something that we uh, do as a bit of a special occasion. But uh, thank you to everyone that listened and uh, hopefully you enjoyed it and uh, you you found we left you wanting more. That's
1: it. As the booby said to the bra, thanks for your support. (laughs)
0: uh <laughs> oh, prof dad joke and um, we really should have a warning about that um mate but while we're talking about the hottest 100 we did record a um follow-up segment but the uh, gremlins uh, got into it so we'll uh just have a bit of a chat this is our first chance that we've uh, got a um podcast out since then um any thoughts on the Hottest 100? There's been lots of dissection since, so we won't go too deeply into it, but no, yeah, no, what no. were your thoughts?
1: No, no plenty of, uh, of material online for those who want to really get in there and uh, turn it into an Excel spreadsheet. I thought it was great. Look, as the numbers increase in terms of the numbers of people voting, uh, and I don't know maths, I don't know um, algorithms and all that sort of thing, but to me it says that the beers that are consistently getting in that top 10 are, are, must be ticking a couple of boxes and and the the first and second and third will be quality. So I think those beers are genuinely like you, you really, it's the sort of beer I've never had a bad one. And I think you can't underestimate the value to a brewer of that kind of uh, consistency and, and attention to detail in terms of quality control. Because so many times you do, you know, you and I do so many functions with the inverted commas average punter who sort of says, oh, yeah, look, I loved that when it came out, but then I bought a six-pack and they were gushes or they were flat, or, I don't know, was the last lot I had, uh, had flow in it or something like that. So now, and it's very easy for them to kind of, uh, A, become fickle because they can, uh, there's plenty of other beers around, whereas there, there wasn't, uh, you know, in years gone by, and they're much more likely to sort of say, To be able to, I guess, identify a good beer from a a, a one that's less well produced. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And and, and that's where people want to apply. You know, when I read the comments, I I get the sense that people want to want to apply that the beer that is number one is literally and indisputably the best beer in Australia, and the ten number ten is literally and indisputably the tenth best beer in Australia. And it doesn't work that way. Um, You need to look at the list as a whole. Beers that have the widest distribution. It's a popular poll. Beers that have the widest distribution are going to reach more people and there are going to be potentially more people voting for that beer. So yes. you are going to see beers with a wide distribution um, that are very well-made beers, um, you know, creep up into the rankings.
1: And look, the old the old adage too, of, or, the, or the comparison that can be made to uh, the best and fairest awards in, in your national sporting codes, it's got to be a really, really, really good player in the premiership team who wins... The best and fairest trophy at the end of the year, because the the other beers, oh, yeah, do you know what I mean. Like, you, you, oh no, man! I, I know exactly what you mean. Know, like, somebody who's got 10, 10, or, 10 or twelve really, really good beers, they're going to spread those votes out, and no, no one beer kind of stands out to the punters um, to get at that top spot. And I think that's so. I think if you have fewer beers in your regular rotation, nationwide distribution and that attention to to quality and the ability to, I guess, you know, never disappoint, then that's gonna be reflected. And I think because the numbers of voters now are are getting exponentially greater every year, there must be a lot more people who are either also drinking mainstream but have happened to, you know, come across the the poll and oh yeah, I drink a few beers, I'm gonna put those in. Uh, and other people who are sort of just new to, to craft or don't consider themselves craft beer drinkers, but just like a particular few kinds of beers, um, those beers will will get votes.
0: And that's yeah something I've seen uh, that's happened to a brewery like Murray's, particularly in the early days, when they had so many beers it could have been a- up high. But you know everyone's got their own favourite amongst that range. Um, but that's also where you know a brewery like Stone and Wood, people might want to sort of say you know, Stone and Wood. Is you know the, the Pacific Ale is too easy drinking or, or whatever, but pretty much every one of their beers made the top 100, and so yes. people are, are, are liking them. The, the the flip side of that is is that if you're going to have like a a, um, a weighting towards the more easily available beers or the, the bigger breweries, when you see something like uh, La Ceren, uh Praline crop up at number five, or some of the much smaller breweries crop up. Um, that's where you really stand back and sort of say, "Wow, you know, what is it about this beer?" And you go out and seek it out because if a, a small, um, you know, irregularly uh, distributed beer is really creating enough excitement that it's making it to the top um, or making it, you know, in, in, into the top 20, top 30, that's really a beer that's worth yeah. uh, checking out. For, it for must yourself.
1: be quality. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. But but then again, look, just about anything. There are some beers that are in there purely based on hype value that you know. People talk about them, so they're front of mind when you're voting, and all of these things come into it. And you can't look at the list as being just this one indisputable list. And no one holds it out. Well, actually, I think people view it that way, but I don't think anyone that's involved in um, putting the competition together holds it out um, in that, uh, you know, in, in in as being that list. It, it, look, it's a great talking point, and it's yeah. a great snapshot of what was exciting over the last 12 months of Australian craft brewing.
1: At the end of the day, the competition, or sorry, the the concept started as, you know, knock-off drinks, uh, the staff at the tap house sitting around going, um, you know, in terms of the Triple J Hottest 100, what would be your your favourite Australian craft beers? It's now seven years down the track. There are obviously a lot of beers available, a lot more breweries and a lot more people voting, but that... um, Principle behind it remains exactly the same. It's it's just a sort of what what do, what do you like?
0: Pretty much. So yeah. look, anything else? Anything stand out? One one thing we recorded the podcast from um, Fortitude. 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 Well, yeah, I, 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 noisy minor Fortitude, um, Mount Tambourine. <laughs> it, it it it's all sort of. a... You know trying to work out exactly what it is but yeah it was the fortitude brewery um also known as noisy minor up on mount tambourine um and that was done because it was a local interesting craft brewery um that ian watson who is a good friend of mine um brews at and that was before i had access to the results and you know, it was a bit of a surprise when they did so well um, and i've heard a couple of you know i've read and heard a couple of things where people are saying they must have had a big social media campaign I, I don't think so. Uh, I, I haven't seen them sort of jobbing for votes or you know no, uh, no. Uh, or anything like that. It, I, I think that they benefited from um, there was probably a very strong Queensland vote for them. But the two beers that really did well, which was the Golden Ale and the um, Anzus IPA, are beers that are probably a little bit limited distribu- distribution wise up here. But have a very strong following, um, which is based on the beers. So yeah, you know, it, was, exactly. it was great to see um, to see them get up, uh, which was a, a, a nice surprise. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, uh, well done to everyone involved, uh, and look forward to doing it all again next year.
0: Yeah, no, that'll be very exciting. Now, mate, other big news just um, since we re- uh, recorded our ill-fated hottest one hundred podcast, um, choice created a bit of a splash with. A, the, the old um, contracts issue um, created a lot of excitement, a lot of enthusiasm, lots of uh, social media sharing as uh, you know, or yep. slash bandwagon jumping into buzz, um, into web buzz. Yeah. Um, I, I look, I, I posted an article about contracts. You, you were sought out by your local media. Um, talk about it. Just, do you want to give us the uh, back of the envelope sketch about your thoughts about the contract issue and the, the choice article?
1: Yeah. I basically, I guess in my radio interview, said you know, there really wasn't much to it. It wasn't anything particularly new. Uh, and at that stage, so, I'd been woken up in a hotel room in Adelaide uh, without a newspaper or without sort of knowing what was going on, so I didn't know. So fortunately, the producer sent the uh, the article through. And I, just looked I thought
0: you were about to say you would... Uh, who, who was the politician that woke up um, without his pants? Or? That was Malcolm
1: Fraser,
0: is not it? Oh, Malcolm Fraser, that's right. So, uh, that you,
1: Memphis you... or Texas or... <laughs>
0: that's right, but you were woke, woken up with your pants yeah. in Adelaide?
1: Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Uh, good. So, yeah, so on the hop, I just thought, oh, I don't. And luckily, I have such a great um, uh, resource as Australian British News. And even at uh, the equivalent of a, it, must have been five o'clock in the morning, your time, I think, uh, or 5, feet, uh, five feet or something, um, there was already um, Twitter gamble and there was plenty of, of news going around, you know, and opinion and all that sort of thing. Uh, nothing new under the sun really is there and at the end of the day I guess the the couple of points that I made were that uh, it's not just the big boys who want contracts, every brewer would love to have uh, contracted taps, Uh, the excise saving for one uh, but also it just means it's that tap presence it's that, you know, the tap decal getting the brand out there and that sort of thing and uh, your punters having I guess access, you know, if you walk into a pub and you've got, even if you've got four or five taps and a hundred beers in the fridge, most people will Will want to choose something from the tap. Uh, and yeah, I think it's kind of all died down now, hasn't it? Um, yeah, it still
0: seems to be sharing, you know, like a lot of craft brewers do it. And, and that's for me, you know, I, I've, as I pointed out in my article, I've, you know, railed against them in the past when I've seen the effects that they can have. Um, and it, it, it always leads to some really exciting um, discussions offline. And I guess the, the one thing that I would say about that is. It highlights how social media works. Um, You you see it with excise um, suggestions. Everyone wants to say, you know, you can make a motherhood statement like the Australian government should do something about excise. And everyone shares it because everyone likes craft beer. They want to see craft brewers get a better um, run. And it's it's one of those things that it's very easy to share. It's a bit of slacktivism. You just share it like um, and it becomes catches on like wildfire. But the issues are always a little bit more complex than that, and uh, contracts is exactly the same as you said. A lot of small brewers want to take it on, um, and something that you know, Steve Jeffers um, has you know, always says: nobody makes these publicans do it. Um, hmm. The the choice article was very much along the lines of CUB shoving these contracts down people's throats, and I saw David Holyoke, in the uh, who's uh, chair of the Australian Real Craft Beer Association. Um, not sure how many members they've got, um, or who, who they who he's representing. But um, you know, coming out and talking about you know half million dollar contracts, and obviously there are some very lucrative contracts for some of the biggest venues in the country. Um, that you know when it when when they can shop their products to you know, their venue to either Lion or Fosters, there, there is some value there. But no one's making them take it. And the sort of venues that are going to take a huge contract like that aren't exactly going to have. Dozens of craft beer taps and, on.
1: No, nah, they're not turning away too many craft beer uh, destination drinkers.
0: And but conversely, a lot of the craft brewers that you speak to, and particularly the guys who are charged with getting the beer, you know, from the brewery into the um, venues, you know, they're almost crying, um, you know, because of the, the 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 tap turnover that all every small venue, because every venue that is supporting craft or wants to be a craft venue wants to have. Every single beer on, um, and they're constantly turning over taps. And you know, as I made the point in the article, if you've got a business and you've got staff to pay, and you've got stain, you know, bank um, for your stain, bank loans for your stainless, and you need to know whether you've got you know two thousand dollars income next week or twenty thousand dollars next week, if if you're constantly relying on small venues that are turning over taps. It's very hard to make a a business plan. And there is an attraction in saying, look, I will give you X dollars or I'll buy this line off you and you pour my beer Mm. because it gives you some idea of projection. And, uh, you know, we're seeing that increasingly. And, you know, everyone's complaining about the big guys signing tap contracts. Um, Yet the small guys, when the small guys take tap contracts, they're not taking those contracts at the big brewer's expenses, they're taking it at another small craft brewers expense um yeah and they
1: can know. easily be seen as a you know, small business hero for, for locking
0: in a you know a good business plan yeah so look i mean it, it is a complex but that's again there's the whole flip side that you know we've seen that when all of the venues were contracted um it was very hard for craft brewers to get their beer on but craft beer has got a real momentum now and i you know i can't think there are too many savvy publicans who are contracting significant significant portions of their tabs if their punters want craft beer. And and that's why, you know, labeling, a lot of it comes down to labeling for me. So brewers, big brewers can't hide behind eight facings, you know, 10 taps with eight different brands that could conceivably come from the one or two breweries. Mm. Um, If people know that they're not being given a choice that might, but at the end of the day, every time you buy a beer, you are casting a vote for how you see the future of the Australian craft beer industry or the Australian beer industry. If you buy um, a beer that's based on whatever is cheapest in the uh, local Uncle Dan's catalogue, that's you know you are casting a vote for where you see the industry. If you are willing to spend a couple of dollars a carton more for a, a, a small batch or for a beer from an independently owned brewery, um, then you know they've got a much better chance of being around in five or six years time. Um, contract or no contract, you know it, it's that's how, what's important to me. But was that? I didn't mean that to be a soapbox. Did it end up going that way?
1: I, I can only just hear you all the way up there, Matt. You're, you're... <laughs> when did you get the When did you get the ten story soapbox? No, not at all. No, 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 no. I, I think, that, and we've covered that off now.
0: We've, yep, move on. Beautifully done. Um, it's from one form of contract to another, um, we're speaking to Anton Spitz- Spitzelak from Brewpack, um, which is one of Australia's largest contract brewers. And uh, it's a chat that I had with him gee, quite a while ago now. Um, it was one of the ones that I think you were even overseas and didn't quite get around to getting it out before we uh, started getting back on. So anyway, it, it, it holds up. Um, it's still fresh and it's uh, looking at some of the big issues facing craft beer. Before we do that, we probably need to thank our sponsors, one of which is David Cryer from Cryer Malt. Um, there was a bit of a story this week, Prof, I saw that malt prices have apparently gone up and uh, demand for craft beer and the premium malts uh, has sent craft beer, up, uh, craft beer malting prices up. Yeah. We might have to have a chat to Dave and uh, find out a little bit about that, but I'm sure that Brewers, if you need malt, David uh, Cryer will not only give you the good stuff, but at a great price. So give Cryer Malt a call. Also, we you know we should have Alan Jones's or uh, bell ringing because the interview with Anton from Brewpack, Brewpack are obviously also a sponsor of Australian Brewers News, um, not shoving sponsors down your throat as you'll hear we talk very little about their beer or it's a not really a plug for them it's uh in in the course of us uh working together i've had some fascinating conversations with him um and uh, i thought it'd be good to record one of those conversations uh for you to hear um take it with a grain of salt if you want or a grain of malt if you uh prefer um but yeah <laughs> but uh you yeah, know brew pack and uh Crymalt do help us uh, with the bandwidth and some of the things that make Radio Brews. It'd be nice if uh, somebody would come along and pay us a salary, Prof. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just leaving a bit
1: of air there just, so, that people, so people can visualise the some water <laughs> blowing across the... Oh, well, the, 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 right.
0: sponsor, yeah, the, the, the sponsorship did uh, pay for a new microphone for you that one day maybe you'll even learn how to use and that plug into you, your computer.
1: Yeah, I'll plug it in. I just don't know how it
0: works. Yeah. Okay. Mate, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll help you out one day. Done. But anyway, before, with any, without any uh, further ado, uh, let's have a chat to Anton Spitzelak from Blue Max.
2: In the garden, what a garden, only happy faces bloom
0: there. Anton, welcome to Radio Brews News.
2: Thanks,
0: Matt. Great to be on board. <laughs> Mate, Thank you very much for being a sponsor. Um, and as I've said over the last couple of episodes, that's not why we've got you on. Uh, you and I have had a couple of great uh, chats um, you know, over the last couple of months just about the Australian uh, brewing industry. And uh, I thought it would be great to, to capture one of those. But you know, thank you very much for the support that you give uh, Brews News. Oh, no problem
2: whatsoever. I'm a big fan.
0: Oh, thank you. <laughs> That's uh, nice to hear. We do, we do seem to have a lot of uh, people involved in the trade liking some of these conversations that we're doing. So no doubt, given that given that you are a uh, contract brewer or a contract uh, brewing contractor. Uh, there's going to be a lot of people interested in this discussion. But I guess before we actually get into the meat of, uh, of what we do, um, tell us a little bit about you. You guys took over uh, Australian Independent Brewers um, a couple of years ago. Um, I-, I believe it's you and your family um, took it over and uh, rebranded it as Brewpack. Tell us a little bit about your background and where you came from and uh, how you came to own a brewery. Yeah,
2: that's a good question. Um, so if you wind the clock back about 10 years, my brother, my older brother, Marek, he actually uh, left Australia at the age of his, his late teens and he went to Germany for a, just over a decade. And in that, in that 10 years, he kind of went to the, the later stages of his high school and he took his tertiary education there in brewing science. And he actually graduated from um, from brewing academies over there and then went through the traditional German brewmaster rotations of internships and work experience, et etc. et cetera. And uh, he came back to Australia uh, about three years ago, actually, and he took a job with the then AIB. This is pre-receivership uh, and, and, and pre-administration. Uh, and he kind of worked there for a little while, and, um, and he kind of saw that the, the business wasn't going in the right direction, and he wanted to kind of distance himself. So he left that business, and that was the end of that story. At the time that that was going on, I was living in New York City. I was working in finance. We had set up a few... Different uh, platforms around the kind of venture capital and private equity space around funding young companies and being involved in turnaround stories and different types of of finance mechanisms. And he um, and he gave me a call and he said, Hey, there's a brew that's going down over in Australia. You should take a look at it. And um, you know, my family's background um, has been renewable energy for a long time. We set up a, a lot of facilities that manufacture a majority of the world's solar panels. So if you're into kind of green energy and stuff like that, you might have come across us before. Um, to make a long story short, I kind of ignored him <laughs> because for me, at the time, I was involved in a very kind of labor-intensive project over in New York City, and it was hard to think about making beer in Australia, so I kind of did my best to avoid him for the next like six to eight months. The the receivers and administrators went on to hire him as the head brewer here um, for a period of time at the now-received uh, and in, in-administration AIB, and he kept pestering me and he kept saying, you got to come down here. You've got to have a look at this business. It's interesting. People like the beer. It's not run particularly well historically, and, you know, we think we could do a pretty good job of it. I think, I think I could really make a goal of this. And, um, I kept ignoring him, to be honest, because for me, I didn't have my history in beer, and although I was drinking loads of good American craft beer, um, it seemed a world away. And then, you know, at some stage, as it happens when you're involved in family businesses, my father stepped in and he said, No, Anton, you've got to go down there. Beer's interesting. Uh, Mark's onto a good thing. Why don't you come down and check it out? So, I came down to Sydney and uh, did a bit of a kind of due diligence visit, as you call it, and just went around and met like a lot of the craft brewers, some of which were brewing with ARB at the time, some of which had been brewing, some of which had never been brewing, kind of kicked around some of the venues to get a bit of an idea about the industry and where it was going. And um, pretty quickly, I became a believer. I mean, you had a facility here that despite the fact it had gone through what would have been a very tumultuous experience for a lot of emerging brands who were selling some sort of Australia's best beer, um, they were sticking by this brewery. And even though it was in administration and there was sometimes problems with supply and, and all, all sorts of other issues. And I was just so shocked. And I kind of, like, I had a look at the opportunity with regards to the industry. I went back to the States. I kind of looked at how the business had evolved over there and, you know, pretty quickly galvanized a, um, a thesis to get involved. And, you know, I might really, just, uh, it took a while.
0: Yeah, I might just jump in there because uh, we're going to move on to, to your involvement in the things that you've done post um you know, taking it over but the 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 story of a, you know the, the Australian independent brewers has never really been told um, you know, there, there was obviously a bit of uh, murkiness involved in in, in what happened um, but Merrick obviously knew that there were some issues going on it wasn 't particularly well run that was a not a very well known secret but i'm I personally am fascinated in in, in looking at um, craft beer um, and its sustainability and whether, you know, the, the breweries that we're seeing springing up now are going to be around in five years' time, and uh, I, I see it as being, you know, how they run their businesses um, as much as anything else. Um, what, what can you tell us a little bit about, you know, as an instructional thing for, for guys who are looking at the business side of um, craft brewing, what can you tell us about the reasons that AIB, you know, fell down in the end?
2: You know, it's a great it's a great question. I think that from my perspective, I mean, I really came from into the picture quite late in the story. So, I mean, the first vision that I had of AIB was of a kind of administrated, um, post uh, you know, defunct entity. So for me, it's kind of it's hard for me to get a good grip around um, around exactly what all of the individual factors were leading to the demise and. And I've heard all the kind of stories that you would have heard out in the industry that probably are hearsay or otherwise, perhaps not the right time to discuss those. But I think that you know the general concept in our business is that you've got a fairly infrastructure heavy um, business and that infrastructure heavy business requires a lot of fixed investment in order to get going to a deficient basis. And the challenge that the beer industry is facing here, which is similar to what's happened over in the states over the last 10 years, or from what i discovered, is that you know just the the amount of capital required in order to get from you know a cottage industry to something which can provide you know not even serious competition to major breweries, but at least have a little bit more of an opportunity to participate um, on the t- on a few tiers below, is quite large. And I, I don't know exactly what happened here. From a perspective of a technical basis, I mean, there were a lot of the reason why my brother kind of left the brewery when he did was that I mean, like you know, there were times where, and again, this is just his stories that he's told me, so I can I can repeat those, where you know, malt was having trouble getting supplies and having trouble getting glass due to the fact that the business was on the way down. And to a brewer who cares about beer, I mean, it's it's hard to kind of not have your own materials ready and to be disappointing clients. And for him, just starting off in the Australian industry, he didn't really want to be so closely tied to that. So he made his exit pretty swiftly. And um, and yes, I mean, I think that from an instructional standpoint, um, from what I have understood of how AIB went down, it's a function of, you know, one is to make sure the investments that you make are done so at the right time in your organization's life cycle and that you can handle not just, you know, phase one, phase two of a 10-step program, but you can clearly galvanize and see that whole 10-step program realized through your own um, capital plan, through your own um, visibility that you're able to generate for your business when it comes to building large infrastructure projects like what this brewery was and what I think that the owner of this brewery had another brewery in the works, which was a problem. And so I think that those two things were a big element is that, you know, overstretching yourself and expanding too fast from an infrastructure standpoint is, is challenging. And then the second thing is, is that, you know, the, when you're dealing with, um, a very distributed set of rapidly growing young companies, and that is kind of what we do today and that's what ARB had been doing before. You, know, you, you really have to make sure that um, that, you know, you, that you're partnering with the right people that are moving in the right direction. I mean, there are stories in industry too that there was a few particular groups that had kind of gone down right before ARB went down and there was a lot of credit exposure there which may have contributed to the demise. So you've really got to make sure that you know, A is you're partnering with the right people and you're partnering with brands in the output trajectory that are managed and still by good, honest business people. And that you're also planning your infrastructure and planning your organization around what would be a sustainable growth pattern that's supported by everything from your capital, your organization, your sales, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Okay. I mean that's that's uh some of those uh, comments are very interesting. Obviously one of the biggest uh, creditors that went down um, was Barron's brewing, um, yes, which was an think... interesting case study. And uh you know, it'd be fascinating. Uh, that's another brewery that would be very interesting to uh, sort of get in and do some of the background to that of because they had some very good beers, they seem to be out there but it, it seemed to be, you know, not demand for their products but the way that the, the business um, was, was handled. So we, we, we might park that on but you also mentioned that the earlier owners were uh, looking at expanding the brewery which is exactly what you're doing now uh, What some two years after uh, you, you, you've taken it over. So um, it. it You've obviously thought that through very clearly, and uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about <laughs> we, your we've own. We've thought it
2: through very clearly, or we're making exactly the same mistakes as the previous administration <laughs> itself. I mean, yeah, for sure. You can look at it on either side of those coins. Yeah, I um, mean, so
0: maybe tell us a little bit about your expansion plans first. Uh, now we we're, we're jumping all over the place, but uh, as I always say, Radio Brews News is a conversation, and we uh, disappear down one rabbit hole and hopefully come up another. Um, so uh, yeah, you, you are uh, building a second brewery.
2: Yeah, so I'll tell you kind of how it how it works for us and yeah, you know, it it does it wraps into the history of what we've done here at this site since we since we took over um AIB and turned it into Brewpack a few years ago. We kinda of came into a brewery here that was quite um archaic in its processes and its equipment and been severely underinvested in a lot of areas. Um and that you know, that's not surprising given its history. I mean you had a few years of receivership between a, a business that went bankrupt and then when we took it out of out of receivership. So for us, I mean, it, it was in a pretty sorry state when we first came in, but one of the, the great um, aspects of this brew house and this brewery was that the, and this is, I'm using a term that I got out of one of your podcasts here, Matt, um, from the Carlton United guy. Um, the quality of the liquid was very good. And I like that term. And people were really happy with the beer when they, when they could get it. If they could take a lot of salt, if they could get malt, they were quite happy with the beer that was coming out of here. And, um, you know, we, we kind of saw that as a cornerstone and that's the reason why we took up the business because if we would have discovered very quickly that the customers that were here were looking to make an exit, we, would, we would probably wouldn't have done the deal um, because we wanted something that we could start with a running start and this was an opportunity to do that. So really the program that we had from the very beginning was how do we modernize this facility, how do we move forward and it does require a ton of capital, a ton of patience and there's ups and downs along the road and, and probably our customers would be references on this. I mean, you know, when you're trying to upgrade a brewery, if, if you try you do your best job on forecasting when it's going to happen how it's going to happen, but you know, you can' you can't do it um you know perfectly according to plan every time and so over the first two years we we've managed to achieve that, and we're really happy with the result, and we think the facility's doing really well, and the breweries continue to grow and cater to the next stage of growth with our clients and pick up new clients and what have you. but there's a theoretical limit to what we can do here um and we're pretty fast approaching that. And when I say that, it's not a perspective that, you know, if one of my clients tomorrow or myself grows our brands, um, that we can't service that. But, you know, the second stage of evolution beyond that is becoming very difficult to see us be able to house that here, which is testament to the growth in the craft beer industry in Australia because we make a lot of beers here. And so, really, we're probably a pretty good um, barometer of what's happening in the industry because when we're really busy, and we've got new business on calls coming through the door. That really means that people are accepting more craft beer and people want to do it because we're kind of a go to guy now in the industry of getting this stuff done. So, you know, we saw that at some stage in the future, and you know, the way I articulated this to my clients was look, we're probably, even with the expansion that we have already conducted, and we, you know, we doubled the brewery capacity, um, you know, each year that we've been in operation for two years. So we're looking at about four times the capacity now that we could ever be done it before. You know we kind of feel that maybe this summer we've you know we've got pretty well covered. we think we we think we can handle everything that we might get thrown out this summer. but if we roll the clock forward another year, that doesn't look as certain, um depending on you know how we manage to retain and grow clients and how stockade does and the rest of it. And then if we walk roll forward a year after that, you know things look a bit a bit challenging. And you know that is based off, you know, a bottom-up analysis that we've conducted from, you know, our existing relative clients and our own brand, and then a top-down analysis and say, okay, you know, where do we think the craft industry is going, what share of that will be independent, how much of that do you think will we'll want to find its way through our facility versus going out there and building their own capacity or finding a way to other contract facilities. So, you know, you've got a situation where you've got on the horizon a few years out, you've got, not, you've got a limitation in capacity. And for us, this business was never really about this facility. This business was never really about, you know, doing what we could do in & Grange. This business was about, you know, creating a real brewery and to create a real contender to the large Australian breweries um, that are in existence today and having a transparent and flexible platform for whoever wants to make, you know, vast amounts of beer to provide them like a cradle to gray solution from their first case that will go into a, you know, small independent bowl shop to... A national rollout with a major retailer. That's what we we wanted to do. And although we're able to do that at today's level of craft beer, um, for our clients and for ourselves, in order to do that, you know, in the future, if the market takes the turns that it has in the States and the market share continues to grow and people want differentiated products, you you really have to invest in your future. And breweries take a long time to build. So, I mean, all those factors come together and then we say, look, you know, we need to, um, we need to start looking at what the next step is for us. And it's funny because at the same time as we're looking to expand you know, our, our operations to additional um, breweries, we're also you know, continuing to improve this brewery. So, we've got an improvement program that we've just conducted now on the packaging side. We've got another one happening in the late, later this year on the brew house. So, we've got you know, an immense amount of capital works that are always ongoing in our facility to keep up with, with the industry, to keep up with the demand from the type of beer they want to make and how much they want to make of it. And um, we, we saw an opportunity. Um, there was a facility out near golden that used to be a large coal mine distribution facility and it had been vacant for a while because the owners couldn't find a way to to kind of sell it to a major distribution company the local government was supportive of transitioning that into a into a manufacturing facility into a large brewery and so we said okay you know let's let's put some work behind this and see whether or not we might be able to get in at a reasonable cost basis and um, you know, seven months later, we've got an approved DA. Um, we've closed on the property, and we're kind of well on our way in planning our much larger, um, much larger brewery, which will, you know, will be a home for um, if we're successful, our own brand and uh, and some of the brands that we manufacture for today that that go on and have requirements that exceed this facility. And and then who knows what other opportunities might be for us? But it's a long time away. And and with regards to brewing, you've really got to plan quite far out. So you know we're not we're trying to learn from lessons um, that have been you know paid before us. In the example of AIB its own expansion plans. But by the same token, I mean if, if we don't move upwards with the industry, and if we don't if we cannot supply, um, then everybody loses. You know we don't have a business that realizes its full potential, and our clients are able to get you know, larger and larger amounts of beer to satisfy their consumers and the consumers themselves don't have the choices that we want them to have in the marketplace. And so for all those reasons, you know, we're starting to plant the seeds now that we hope can harvest over the next two years in in just additional capacity and being able to to cater to different types of clients.
0: I guess uh, when I hear you speak, um, you know, I I spend a lot of time around brewers and there's a lot of talk about passion and uh, I I hear a businessman talking when I speak to you, which is uh, one of the reasons I really wanted to have a chat to you. (laughs) Hopefully you'll find that a compliment. Um, uh, But when, um, because I I think that the the business side of things is one of the things that you can't, that you don't often hear spoken of in the craft industry. And uh, yes, you know, um, beer quality and interest and those sorts of things is important, but they are still businesses um, and uh, so it's fascinating to hear you talk about that but I guess with all that you're talking about capital investment and forward planning uh, and you know in investment um, what I really hear that coming back to is you've got a lot of faith in the future of the beer movement that we're seeing now you see that the the, the trends that we're currently experiencing now are going to continue into the future.
2: Yeah absolutely I mean so and again, I don't want to fall too far into your stereotype of your <laughs> archetypal cold-hearted businessman. Oh, no. I didn't say cold-hearted. No, I bought a distressed building, a business. So I've just bought a distressed building. I mean, I'm, kind of, I'm doing finance deals. Um,
0: oh, no, no. Yeah. Meant, yeah, so that, that, that wasn't a pejorative uh, description. <laughs> no, look, I don't, business, look, I don't
2: mind. I spent, I spent 10 years on Wall Street. I've got no problem with that. The, um, <laughs> the, yeah, beer so, never sleeps. Yeah, beer, beer never sleeps. I would say this, um, yeah, I mean, it is it is it's an interesting concept here. Um, I kind of we've been involved in other businesses which are part of this same global trend that we're trying to capture, which is you know what I refer to, and I've used this term with you before, I think um, the democratization of the consumer. So whether it's bread, whether it's meat, coffee, there's a bunch of consumer product areas which have had historically quite large companies behind them um that dictate to consumers what it is that they can buy and how much they can buy it for and what their choices are. And those, you know, over a long period of time, so over a megacycle, you may have that basically conforming to um what is manufactured most efficiently, which is a natural tension between creativity and large-scale manufacturing. And I want to just
0: uh, jump in there and just clarify that when you say megacycle, you're talking about, you know, for example, not the two- or three-year uh, you know, taste in IPAs are hot this year, next year it's going to be Saison. You're talking about that expansion and you know, perhaps eventual consolidation of you know, 50 players in a market to maybe three or four large players in a market, consumers getting bored with that and then starting to look for variation and seeing a, 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 you know, a, a re-expansion of the number of players. Is that what I... What yeah, what I mean, say megacycle, mega I mean, you're
2: talking like 25 to 50 years. And it's, yep. it sounds ridiculous for a 32-year-old to be talking about that, but you know we have to we have to read and, and learn from how these things work in other areas. But, I mean, I think that if you look at how it's worked in Australia, and you know if you plotted um, if you plot the the wave of the number of breweries in Australia, um, just purely as a population of brewers over time, you'd start to see what that cycle looks like on a time period. Uh, but it's no different to a lot of other things. I mean, it's no different to coffee. It's looking at the mega cycle. If you if you take so if you plot on a on a graph the number of breweries independent breweries in Australia over time you can see that that will move in an upward direction throughout Australia's early growth and I don't know where it would peak it might peak if I had to guess somewhere in the in the mid twentieth century and then it would start to drop and it probably dropped to its lowest point I'm going to guess Matt you're probably a better um, historian of beer in Australia in the early nineties. I mean, is that is that kind of where the, the peak of the M and A activity in the Australian beer sphere was?
0: Look, I wouldn't say so. There was a there was an expansion in the late eighties. Um, you know, the the nineties you you saw uh, you know between eighty four when Anchor first kicked off to to the mid nineties when we had the recession. That seems to be the, the the peak period. The successful ones were purchased by the big ones, and a lot just failed.
2: Yeah, and then you kind of you see it it, it drops down and it starts to kind of clock up again with the resurgence of craft. And that is the cycle. Um, and I, I think, like I mentioned before, I mean, the theme is, is you know, consumers, you know, what, what we want, if, if I go into a restaurant now, I mean, what do I want? You know, what, what do I really want to buy? And, um, you know, what, what do my contemporaries want to buy? What do my people in my age category want to buy? We want something that's individually catered towards us. We want to feel as if we have freedom. We want to feel as if we have choice. All of those trends, everything from travel to food to cars, I mean, you know, the global market is changing to try and cater to those needs. Craft beer is one element of that. Um, and it's an element which is super cool and I love it and I think it's amazing and I think that beer is an amazing product because of its diversity. I think the people in this industry are pretty cool to talk to. You get a lot of characters and I think the opportunity is really great. Um, and that's really what I'm talking about when I say this kind of mega cycle, this trend is that, you know, we've got this early infancy of this cycle here in Australia where, um, you know, people are starting to wake up to the options that may be available to them uh, when it comes to beer, which is a iconic Australian product. And it's only just happening over the last four or five years where people are converting off what they're being told to to consume um, versus what, you know, if they have an opportunity to explore what they choose to um, consume. And we think that that trend has many years of life left. And that's really what we focus on when we think of growth in the industry. It's just more consumers and more beer drinkers and more people becoming passionate about what they consume about natural products, about the way things are made, about connecting with the manufacturer, about about the flavour characteristics that they can take out of the beer experience above and beyond whatever they may be able to get 10 years ago. That's really what the trend of craft beer to wife means.
0: I guess, and and, and that's where it's interesting, because uh, this large cycle is what I'm particularly fascinated about. Everyone's talking about uh, beer being permanently entrenched. Um, I look you know for example coffee um you know 4 or 5 years ago everyone was buying you know thousand, two thousand, 3000 dollar coffee machines um because they wanted great coffee but then you know there there is a time cost that comes with making great coffee and you know servicing costs and uh, suddenly a uh, you know convenient solution came out in the, the case of these uh much cheaper much more convenient pods i don't think people think that they're getting as good a coffee but they're still having a lot of the cues of the uh you know homemade uh Um, espresso um, but much more convenient to me that really sums up a lot of of what we see about those um, more extended business cycles at the moment craft beer is being driven by you know enthusiasm and excitement and people are willing to pay 80 90 dollars a carton for a uh, you know a a craft brewed golden ale um, for example um, which is a you know a a very nice very uh, you know complex uh, beer you know 18 months, two, three, four years down the track, will people be still looking, you know, happy enough to pay that, or will they have settled on, you know, two or three bigger players who are able to provide a very similar product at a, you know, significantly reduced price? That's one of the things that I see uh, going to impact on a lot of the small brewers that are springing up.
2: Yeah, I think that you've got, you definitely have that concept. So. But it also, it also plays part and parcel to the business cycle for those individual breweries because if you roll the clock back two or three years, the number of breweries that can offer, um, a product in those, you know, more premium sub craft price categories that drive volumes is, is, is not as much as it will be five or six years from now once you've had successful business growth and breweries move from, uh, restaurant pubs to Production facilities to medium-sized production facilities, and who knows, maybe even large brewing groups. That transition will translate to the option of those um, brand owners and stewards to be able to offer to market solutions that cater to different different areas of that volume pyramid. And I think that as that evolves, you know, you, you'll see that. I mean, I don't know, I can't make a comment on, you know, maybe the first time that you offer choice to market, the first person who who offers, you know, you know, a hand-roasted, imported Ethiopian coffee bean. Uh, When everything else is, you know, factory-made Colombian, the first time somebody does that, it's different, it's interesting, they can charge a enormous premium, certainly they can. Um, And over time, you would imagine that as more players enter that market and more people start providing those variants, things get a little competitive. I think what you'll end up having is you'll probably end up having the the transition on the mass volume basis similar to what you've depicted, but you'll probably still have on the fringe, you know, a, a, a core... Um artisanal generation engine of people who keep coming to market with more and more creative and more and more differentiated products that continue to charge that amount because I do think that the consumer you know there's always a pursuit for something that's edgy there's always a pursuit for something that's different and the more and more um, that the craft guys um, you know and ourselves kind of conform into those and get more out there it's kind of funny it's almost like anti establishment i i have this 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 concept and I had this discussion with some brewers sometimes is, you know, if, if, you're a, if you're a craft brand and you're on the upper trajectory in the early days, you've got this fervent movement, you're different, you're unique. But once you start to get, you know, your taps out there and your pack is distributed across a nationwide national retailer, you know, people start to say, oh, you know, is this is, you know, how crafty are you now? I'm going to go to the guy who's just starting up who were like you were two years ago. And I, I don't know. I mean, I think that it will be... If you can manage to balance the two of those together, stay fresh, stay creative, engage your kind of loyal fervent um, followers throughout the entire trajectory of your growth curve, you know but still able to deliver on you know what you need it to be in order to be a serious player in Australia, which is a product which a lot of people can have access to. I think that's a recipe for
0: success and you'll be excited to see which brands manage to achieve that over the next three or five years. Oh, it's, it's going to be a fascinating time. I, I, I guess one of the things that uh, that brings in, it's, it's a nice time to start talking about contract brewing because for me, um, one of the issues that I've been really railing about um, quite loudly is uh, labeling. And that's not anti-contract. <laughs> um, you know, that, that's not anti-contract at all, but it's just sort of it's looking...
2: Because at, you're a state the truth and transparency, aren't
0: you, Matt? At the, at the expense of all things, that's really what it comes down to. At the expense of all things? You think, oh, well, we'll see if I can keep paying we'll, the mortgage. We're
2: about to have that debate. <laughs> but, uh,
0: but, you know, it's never anti-contract brewing. But one of the things that matters to me is looking at this, um, you know, I, I got into this because I love beer. Um, I, wanna, I don't want to go back to the end of the cycle where we have two major players and no choice. Um, and that's something that's important to me. But, um, you know, I, I see that uh, labelling is a big part of that. And, you know, as as that business cycle goes on and, uh, you know, you, you've got a multitude of players who are coming out with similar products, um, a, a, a small brewer, you know, a, a small... Um, and we'll use craft in the really strict definition of the word, uh, you know, small, independent, traditional um you know they're making everything themselves they're doing it in house um you know they're the guys that in some respects have the ability to to bring out the really interesting beers very very quickly um because they can uh you know they're fully in control of their own destiny um and i would like to see them survive and for me um their brand is very important to them and what this definition of craft is and uh you know i i guess um, another stage of that business continuum, other brewers that you cater to, who uh, you know have their own brewery and then provide them scalability, you know rapid scalability without a huge capital injection, um, and then the other you know then, then there are also guys which are a label labeling companies who may or may not have a brewery, may or may not have their own recipe, um, but have an idea to, to sell, and it, it's I, I see it's important that th- those three. Broad categories of, of brewer have a bit of a distinction. Um, you know, stepping out of your business is catering to two of those. Do, do, do you see that those sorts of marketing distinctions are You know, are important um, within, within the brand.
2: Yeah. See, it's kind of an interesting question because relating it back to the kind of you know product and segment megacycle. I mean, the role of regulation in all of these industries does play a role but you need to make sure that it's tempered along the right side of it. Now, I'm not an arbiter of what government should be doing. Um, I'm kind of operate in one of the most heavily regulated industries. I'd say that you've got to make sure it's timed correctly. My viewpoint of where we are today and what I like to see today is very simplistic. Um, I want to walk into a bottle shop and I want to see people reaching for interesting beers. That's what I want to see. I want to see that. I want to see people making choices to experiment um, and I want to see people being adventurous which will translate to an appreciation of different flavors and will translate to numerous brands benefiting from them switching off whatever they're drinking the day before, even if it was craft beer. That's really what I care about and the challenge that I have with this argument around transparency and labeling is that the way that the market structurally works in Australia is a little different to the way it works in the States you might have fifty or seventy five different um, you know geographical zones which each of which is obviously quite large even compared to Australia. But you've got you know, you do have so many different distributors, you do have so many different levels, um, that's quite it's quite easy for young brewery in the early days of the crafty movement in America similar to the time it might be today, to kind of take it to take a one step up the ladder. You know, okay, I'm I'm making my own beer, I'm selling it in my own brew pub and then bottling it selling it out at my cellar door. Now I'll go kind of you know a step above and I'll, I'll work with a regional distributor and get a small amount of beer out and I'll do it myself. Hey, that's successful. Um, let's do it to the next level. Let's take a kind of you know a state-based distributor and work with them. I'll go to the bank. I'll get a small loan. I'll upgrade my infrastructure. I'll be able to cater to that growth. Hey, that's successful. And then this kind of cycle is incremental and it works quite smoothly in the U.S. because of the fact that they have a very fragmented end distribution system coupled with the fact that capital is much more liberal in the U.S. than it is here. And what that means is that if I have a business plan in the U.S. and that business plan's got legs, then I can raise money. I can raise money quickly. The challenge that you've got in Australia is that you've got really a 2 tiered system. You've got the independents and you've got the pubs, some of which are already contracted and it's very difficult to break into that. And then you've got the major retailers. And if if I want people to have choice in a, a supermarket, in a liquor land, in a BWS, you know that you really need to be able to provide them a lot of product. And that doesn't give you this smooth growth curve that you've had in the U.S. And that's where contract manufacturing comes in because, in effect, it removes a capital barrier. And you might ask, what's the difference? What does this make a difference? I'm talking to you about labeling, but, in effect, it's all part of the same trend because, I mean, I don't want a brewery who is contract manufacturing sitting next to a large Australian brewer. You know, there's two, three large guys. I don't want anyone to say, oh, look at that. That's contract manufactured. I'm just going to go and take a, a Squires. Or I'll just go take Matilda Bayer. I, I don't want that choice to get made. I don't want there to be any friction between the choice of the consumer. And that may be selfish because I run a contract manufacturer catering to some of those clients. But to be honest, it wouldn't be bad marketing for me if every single one of those bottles set made a brew pack. So uh, my my opinion is that at the stage of the life cycle that we're in right now, choice is really what we want consumers to have. And I think that anything that we can do to promote that. Is kind of fair game, and you know, two years down the track, when you've got you know 15 or 20 large craft breweries that are out there making their own beers, maybe the role of regulation comes a little more pointed, especially having blatant disregards for mislabelling and misleading. But personally speaking, I will always favour whatever is kind of current and relevant today to drive that consumer choice, and that's my position on it.
0: Absolutely, and sorry, I think we sort of uh, sort of got a little bit more heavy into the 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 topic than I meant. I was a I was just sort of really looking at, um, you know, contract brewing provides that very important mechanism. I guess um, in terms of, we, we still are faced with having two major brewers um, who are going to be able to produce uh, beers of the quality of um, James Squire and Matilda Bay um, you know, much cheaper than small craft brewers, um, you know, small um, you know, owner brewers, and even, I, I guess, a facility such as yourself uh, for the time being. Um, and for me, um, I think that you know, you can walk into a hotel at the moment, uh, you can see a bank of eight taps uh, that have Forex um, Gold, uh, Heineken, um, James Squire, Kosciuszko, Little Creatures, um, and uh, White Rabbit, and it looks like, wow, the consumer is getting a, a fantastic... Range of beers offered to them because each of those is different, d- differently branded, and for the unknowing consumer, which is still most of the uh, you know, beer market, they're going to think, "Wow, isn't this fantastic?" You know, Kosciuszko went skiing there. You know, I saw, I saw the brewery, and they—they're not going to know that it's made by Lion, so uh, they think that they're getting presented with a uh, a great choice, um, and that's not comment. That's not a comment on the quality of the beers. It's just sort of looking at the ownership of the brands because in in that mega mega cycle you're talking about you know once uh that brand grows if those craft brands grow so big it um, shades out a lot of the smaller ones um, and they sort of get their their market share or maintain their market share. History shows us that over time you know the the smaller selling of their brands get dropped off and so you know we, we gradually see a shrinking of the um, the range that even that that one brewer offers. One of the things that craft brewing offers us is you know, a whole lot of little players who are you know, offering choice. And, you know, I would like to see a clear distinction in the marketplace between, you know, the bank of eight taps made by one brewer and a bank of eight taps made by, you know, four or five brewers. Um, and that's where the labelling comes in. So it's less about the contract brewing contract brewing itself but it's just giving consumers the ability to know who makes the beer or you know who what is the story behind the brand that they're buying to ensure that we're going to have choice as that mega cycle uh, progresses
2: yeah I uh, look I mean my opinion and the way I kind of responded to that was that I don't disagree that it's good practice to have Good regulation in the industry, and I think that when it comes to labeling i'll
0: just jump in there because both times you 've talked about regulation um, and you know my idea of hell is as you know more regulation as you said it 's already one of the most regulated um, industries, but you know as we saw with the A and byron bay you know it 's the most obvious um, egregious cases that the A steps into um police they don't you know the the marginal calls they don't and it's when uh there's a really obvious case then they step in but the problem with that is that when they step in for the most obvious cases everybody uh, gets tarred with the same brush and government doesn't have the ability to reg to regulate um in a nuanced way they have blanket rules and that's where the red tape can kill the industry um i guess my view is that if brand owners do the right thing and create clear um, you know distinctions in their their marketing the government never actually has to step in and create that marketing that is going to you know um, if and we're still to see what the ACCC's uh, judgment is or what their requirements are going to be but you know the worst case I would have thought is the ACCC comes in and says anybody that's contract brewing has to label every beer that they every beer that they contract brew with the point of origin so that means a small brewer you know, who maybe only does it at Christmas um, to c- cope with that Christmas supply suddenly are going to have to reprint all of their labels um, at great cost. Or a brewer that may use two or three brewers is going to have to add two or three contractor operators or change, you know, wants the flexibility to change, is going to have to change. And that's where if the industry doesn't look after itself, government comes in and uh, really damages the industry with the blanket approach.
2: Yeah, I don't disagree. And my comment around timing and regulation is is just a function of, you know, at what stage is the industry graduated from its fragile infancy where it can support the costs associated with a changing landscape. And this is a great example of that. I mean, yes, the Byron Bay case is quite egregious and yes, we know what the ACCC has said there, but if in the event that um, it does turn out that everyone's got to change their labelling or what have you, and a lot of cases aren't egregious, and a lot of cases may be in the grey area where it's a little different to interpret. Well, I made a comment about you know where regulation plays a role in these evolving markets. I like to see it so that in the event that you know rules change, and they do in every industry, they change over the time. That at least the, the 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 participants who are out there driving that choice you know, on, on a distributed basis, um, they're not unfairly penalised um, with respect with respect to their weight. Because if you've got you know if you've got eight brands that can mate under a craft umbrella of a major brewery. And they have to all get relabeled and rebottled, and there needs to be different messaging on that packaging. That's a cost. That's a cost as a function of revenue nil. When it comes to a small brewer, to have to replate his cartons, his six packs, and his bottles, that cost is enormous. That cost could be the same as having a salesperson on the road for six months, which is a total step change in their ability to distribute their product. So when I say timing is, is, is relative to how I, how I foresee this should work, this is obviously my own idealism. Coming to play, but you know, I, I feel as if with regard to this issue, um, I, I hope they don't come down too hard on industry because you know I do understand they have to give a level playing field. They can't come after big guys and not go after small guys. But I just hope with regulation in general. That you know, it doesn't become too difficult to operate in the in the industry before the players themselves have the resources to cope with that additional regulation.
0: That's really my only point. Absolutely, and you yeah, look. It, it sounds like we're we're actually agreeing, but um, you know, it's it's a fundament. It's it's the fundamental principle, and uh, you know, the the principle that I um sort of work to in my own head to try and avoid government regulation, um, and also um, you know, what what I call. Uh, you know, acceptance creep or um, you know, creeping of, of the line is uh, I talk about this concept of a fire break um, which is you know you, you stop short of the line because if you go right up to the line it's very easy to, to cross the line or you know the, the fire can jump um, a, a small barrier um, and this was particularly uh, relevant when the, the Byron Bay case, I was uh, litigating that against CUB and, you know, they didn't come out and name anybody but they said, oh, look, we're not the only ones doing this, you know, um, we're not doing anything that anyone else is doing when it was quite clear they were doing something very different um, to anybody else. But, you know, they, they were sort of, uh, you know, I, I felt nodding towards the Kosciuszko brand, for example, which uh, didn't have lines name anywhere else. And, you know, for, for me, I thought that, you know, you, you could distinguish between the two because, uh, you know, Chuck Hahn is very much the face of, Kosciuszko. everyone knows that Chuck works for Lion, and that was certainly Lyon's position. But you know, it, it, there is a continuum, and uh, so Byron, Byron Bay Lager pointed to Kosciuszko. Um, when you speak to Chuck Hahn, and I did a uh, conversation with Chuck Hahn about twelve months ago, you know, he looked at some of the the, the the craft brewers. The craft brewers, when you speak to them, they can differentiate themselves, and because it's a continuum. You, you reach a point where you do get to the line and suddenly you don't know whether you're over the line because everybody has sort of just kept pushing it. So, um, I mean, my point is the brand owners um, should, you know, be upfront about it because if they do, then you're not going to get everybody else pushing. And, you know, the, the, the thing is, and, and I hear you saying it yourself, um, you know, everybody knows that not everybody should have to do it. But yet everybody sees themselves as the exception, and uh, you, you get to the case where some of the, um, you know, some of the brands are going out of their way to portray that they do have a brewery um, when they're just not. And uh, it doesn't matter to the liquid, but brand perception does matter for people. And uh, you know, they, they often won't say it on record, but they'll say it privately. You know, guys that may be using uh, independent distillers in uh, Victoria will say, look, you know. I think that we can we, we've got a strong brand, we've got a good business, but you know if we put a sahi on the label, which is who owns independent stillers, suddenly people are going to think that we're different. Um, and to me, they're acknowledging that you know th- there is concern in the market, and people will care about who makes it.
2: yeah, I don't, I don't dispute that that might be an issue for some people. And I made the example of where you walk into a bottle shop, and which bottle do you reach for? You know, a small, independent craft manufacturer a craft brewer who has a batch contracted or a large brewer which, you know, and I just personally, what I'm trying to avoid in the argument that I make is, you know, giving additional advantage to groups with capital. And to be honest, although there's a lot that goes into making a successful beer brand, it's not just how much money you have, it's, you know, know, how well can you connect with your consumers? What's the quality of your product? Is your recipe on point with what the market wants? Um, You know, can you handle your operations? I mean, so many of these things that you've touched on yourselves, But, you know, one thing which has been a consistent theme in the beer business over the last, you know, 150 years is that, you know, capital is king here and everywhere else. And I don't want, you know, whether it's the larger breweries or if it's the smaller craft guys who are able to raise money and grow quite quickly, I think that we, you know, personally speaking, and I'm on the other side of this fence, I have a brewery, you know, I I kind of, I have a brewery, I have a brand. I just feel like I want those small guys, even if they don't have the, the coin, to kind of get that first leg up that they need and get their great beers to consumers and anything I can do to help them, I I want to do that. And anything the industry can do to help them, I think that's great. And, you know, the guys that are more established with production assets themselves, which cost millions of dollars, which require investment and collateral and use and planning, we want to kind of make the market liberalise so those guys don't own it. And maybe the way to do that is to change the philosophy of the consumer to know that if a beer is contract manufactured, it's not necessarily better or worse than a beer, which isn't. I don't know. But, you know, if somebody says to me today, you know, I'm in a supermarket and just like I said, they reach for a beer which is made by a brewery, one which is made by a contract manufacturer, and they say, ah, oh, you know, like, you know, this is just the same as as the Squires beer. I would say, no, it's not. I mean, these, you know, how beer is manufactured is not the same, whether it's in one facility or another. We have some brand owners that you know that are there every step of the way. We have some brand owners that drive the brew house. We have some brand owners that assist us with packaging. So. I feel like, you know, it's not a one size fits all solution, but the overarching theme that I push for is, you know, what what can we do to kind of drive this liberalization of the beer market? What can we do that will drive people to have a choice? And that's not just towards my beers, that's not just towards craft beers. I mean, I really like to see people walk out of bowl shops with a six pack of squires. I, re- I love that. I like people walking out of a bowl shop with a six pack of fat yak or a Coopers Artisan series. I think those are great choices for consumers to make because I know that once they start on that journey that they're going to find their way into some serious stuff, which, is, which will be interesting. It will be an opportunity to participate in that for us or anyone else who's making cool beers. And I think that, you know, everything that we can do to kind of usher that journey and its destination is what we should be doing. And that's my opinion. And, only yep. my oh, opinion. and, and I, I hadn't actually
0: uh, planned to go into this level of uh, discussion about... Uh, Contract brewing, or you know, and 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 looking at it. But uh, seeing we've gone that way, the, the one last thing I'll um, sort of discuss about it, and uh, you know, perhaps my greatest fear for craft brewing, and something else that ties back to labeling, is, you know, the 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 two retailers who are you know with their vertical integration models have launched their own brands, and perhaps the uh, you know to use that word egregious again, the most egregious example is Steam Rail by Coles, which uh, you know. It's impossible to find information about who owns it, who brews it. Um, They've got carefully crafted stories. And, uh, you know, over the last 12 or 15 months, I've walked into First Choices regularly and, uh, you know, just engaged the salespeople. Oh, this steam rail, who makes that? And I'm told every time, uh, you know, it comes from a little craft brewery in Melbourne um, and, you know, varying themes of either the same brewery that makes that one, pointing to mountain goat, or I've even been told it comes from the mountain goat brewery. Um, And as soon as I hear that, I hear, um, you know, I'm taken back to a time when I was probably eight, nine or ten and uh, walking along the rows at Coles and mum reaching for the black and gold baked beans and me saying to her, no, get the um, Heinz one. And, you know, mum turning to me and winking and saying, it comes out of the same factory and look at the price difference, Um, you know, essentially saying that Heinz and home brand are exactly the same, but you can save more money. And these days, you know, fast forward to, I guess, the, uh, the end of that mega cycle that you talk about, walking into Coles these days, and there is one leading brand of baked beans um, and three home brand, three various uh, grades of home brand, and nothing else. And uh, my fear is that that's going to happen with um, craft beer as well. Um, once the initial expansion stage um, goes, we're going to see the retailers putting more and more pressure through their own home brands. And if 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 the craft brewers let them do that by being lax in their own labeling, then we're opening the market to dodgy or you know, hidden um Coles brands or hidden home brands that are going to uh you know really take out of the market um, five, ten years down the track.
2: I don't really agree with the concern of it as much as you do to be honest. I mean maybe your crystal ball is a little you know further into the future that you can see than what I do. But I'm not that concerned about it. And the reason why is because I do feel like some of their beers are good. I think some of those beers are really good. And I feel like those guys are doing a great job along the same trend that I mentioned before of kind of driving the opportunity to get to get consumers to have choice. And they're doing it with their own products, and I think that's great. And if they're right, I mean... Are
0: they giving the consumers choice? Because they're not evolving any... Uh, Coles particularly have taken the most popular categories, you know, beers across three or four categories... And just parroted them, and I, 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 and you know, not saying that they're bad quality beers, but in terms of the the offering, they're at the lower end of the flavour spectrum for each of the styles that they've chosen. So, you know, to to me, they're going into creamer I, market, not creator they, market.
2: Yeah, I don't, I don't really share. So, okay, so even if you were correct to say that those are variants of existing, and they're not pioneering their own flavour creations, I, I don't. I mean, there are some collaborations that supermarket brands are doing with, you know, really respected brewery artists to kind of get really interesting views. So I don't really wholeheartedly buy into that. But the more important concept is when I look at how a vertically integrated person behaves in industry, what, how are they behaving now? Now, you can have a broad argument about the role of cold and Woolworths in Australia. I mean, These are very creative and ambitious companies. I, I have to take my hat off to them. I think they're doing some amazing stuff around big data. These are, this is probably a unique test bet in Australia because you've got a small enough market that you can probably dominate a whole country and you've got, you have know, got, you have these existing players which have managed to kind of form themselves into these two large groups. And I have to say they're doing exactly what they should do, which is exploiting opportunities in front of them. And I can say that from their behavior so far, I don't see it being negative. And the reason why I say that is because some of the best places I can buy beer these days are First Choices and Dan Murphy's. And it's not about just buying steam rail beer. It's not just about buying home brand beer. I mean, I, I go into a, the, my local first choice liquor, and they've got a great selection of single serve American craft brewers on the shelf. They've got an amazing selection of Belgian triples. But I, this one brewery, just uh, this one bottle shop down the road from me in Maroobo where I live, has got you know seven different types of Belgian triples. None of which are made by um, the home brand. Now, if you were to draw a parallel to perhaps the most feared concepts, you might look at, say, you know, home brand, commodity products, bleachers, I don't know, maybe some vegetable categories. And maybe these guys have been able to kind of, uh, uh, to control that. But, you know, from their behavior so far in the industry, they're not. And If they were, they would be reducing the number of SKUs that they're off on the shelves, not increasing them. And I find that that's not in, in, in some intrinsically altruistic, um, philosophy that these guys have. It all harks back to what does the consumer want. And despite whatever, you know, Coles and Woolworths or Lion Nathan and Carlton United or Coopers want to do, at the end of the day, there are five groups, six groups, seven groups who have resources and have brewers and have production facilities and distribution capability. But, you know, what I'm seeing in the market today, and this is what I'm seeing from consumers all over Australia, they want more choice than what a few groups can offer them. So, what I would be more concerned about is if their ability to create and to put products on the shelves that are so diverse, that are so creative, that are so interesting, outpaces the demand of the consumer to experiment, I think then you've crossed the Rubicon where you have to be careful about what they're doing. But at the moment, you know, they're out there happily stocking great craft beers, doing a great service to, to the Australian craft community by getting it out there and really kind of championing the larger-scale distribution of these products. And the consumer themselves are saying, yeah, great, I'll, I'll grab a six-pack of steam rail. i have while I'm here. I want to try a five hundred mil road bottle. Or I might just go grab one of those interesting scouts from England. And I feel as if, if their attitude was towards command and control, they wouldn't be allowing so many SKUs to continue to increase and give so much autonomy to regional store managers like they do in order to fill their shelves with what's on their extended ranging list, which is really broad and really cool. So I, I don't know again, but from my first comment about what will happen five years from now, what will happen ten years from now. You will know, we'll this go the way of some other markets, categories and supermarkets, like, for example, gasoline or what have you, where these guys have a lot of control? But for the moment, I see them being great actors. I see them being great distributors and great believers in craft beer. Some of the people that I talk to at these groups are, you know, super passionate about beer and they're taking an active hand in developing their own products. So I think that, you know, craft beer has a lot to thank to these major retail groups. Because without them, you don't have access to 80% of the market. And at the moment, some of the most successful stories in the independent craft beer are really being supported by these guys. So I don't feel as if there's a congruency between what you fear and what I see today. But then again, like I said, I don't have a crystal ball for five years. Look, I don't have future. a crystal
0: ball either. But I guess that's the, the the fundamental difference. I agree with what you're saying about their behaviour now. They're getting craft beer out. But you know, when you when you look at the way they've acted in the past, um, you know, at, at the moment craft beer is growing so quickly. Um, that we're in that very early part of the upward curve it's once that organic growth stops um, and they need you know, and that's when I think that we'll see the bad actor in them coming out um, and uh, you know they need to keep their margins and we'll see their vertical integration and we'll gradually see a lot of the um, uh, sort of independent ranges drop. Um, will see uh, you know, a lot of their own imports um, and a lot of their own home brand beers. Well, and, they, and they'll never create a home brand beer. They'll always be these uh, sort of uh, faux brand beers um, that they've done in the wine industry. And I think the wine industry is a great example. So, look, I, I don't know where we're going to go. Um, if they label their beers to say, you know, rather than having um, you know the, the Steam Rail Brewing Company, I think they need to have Coles on, on the brand. So when people... Uh, going to buy them they know what they're getting and if, if price availability and convenience are what matter to them then they'll happily buy the steam rail beers but at the moment the number of people who are saying to me look I don't know you know, who makes steam rail because they don't know and if they did know they would probably choose a clearly marked independent then you know that's, that's where my fear is um, but uh, as you say I don't know that I've got a crystal ball Yeah I
2: mean I, I kind of if you want to look at a great example of this Look at the cheese section of your, of your supermarket. Um, cheese has been around for a very long time, probably longer than supermarkets have been around. Yet, I can walk into a cold today or a Woolworths today and I can see cheese from Norway, cheese from France, cheese from Tasmania. Yeah, I, I don't know what power that they exert over these guys. I don't, I'm not a, not a cheese maker, but I'd say, you know, I've, it, it really comes down to the product category itself. I mean, I don't know. There's no brand and there's no type of gasoline I don't know what type of gas, I don't know where the refinery is, it's my gasoline, it's my gasoline. I don't know where um, where my um, diesel comes from. So, in some commodity markets, I feel as if those fears are, are kind of probably better placed. In a, in a highly artisan market like winemaking, I guess, is a good example of this, and maybe that's a better case study than what I'm talking about now. I mean, I still go into a first choice and I see 200 types of wine, and even a supermarket makes 75 of them, there's still 125 types of wine that they stock. They're so coming from independent suppliers, and we don't see 125 types of beer on the shelves. So once we get to a point where we've got 150 types of beer in bowl shops, me and you could be celebrating over you know, a case of, of awesome beers that hopefully we made, and then we can talk about what we have to do to make sure it stays that way, that we've got a long road to go before we get to that point, and these guys are instrumental partners in making that happen, and they've been so supportive of the movement so far. That I just kind of I
0: don't feel as if that's a kind of circa two thousand and fourteen concern more. No, but as I said, I'm yeah I, I want to be drinking great beer in my dotage, uh, not just in my mid forties. So but, <laughs> now, I, I know that I've kept you on the line for a long time, and this was a whole area that I would uh, not anticipated. Uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about, and one of the main things I wanted to talk about, is just the mechanisms. You know, um, me um, Matt Kirkegaard wants to. Uh, create a beer label. Um, I've, I've got an idea um, for, for a great beer. I think it's a market winner. I've got a great brand. What's the process for uh, take getting my beer to market? Um, do I just knock on your door and say, you know, mate, I, I want a uh, pale ale. Do, do you have a menu of pale ales I can choose from? Or do I need to come in and talk to one of your brewers and give the exact specs and uh, no no recipes, you know? How do I go about taking my idea um, and getting it on the shelves um, yeah, using contract brewing?
2: That's a that's a good question. I, I think that it it really differs by group. So we do get a call that that will be. will give you the categorisation. So you've got some people who will come to us, and they will be a brewery already, and they'll they'll be they'll already be contract brewing, or they'll already be brewing themselves on volumes in their own facilities and looking for expansion capability. And these guys, they know exactly what they want. I mean, they have a recipe that's scaled. They have everything that they need. And all we're really helping them with is tuning that towards our production process. There is some kind of advisory back and forth between our brew team and their brew team about how we think this would play out in our facility. But they're looking to match exactly what they've currently got. And they've got a very good idea how to make it. And they're super hands-on. Our role is kind of more towards conforming that to our brewery. And they're great customers because they know exactly what they want and they generally have good volumes to bring straight away. That's one end of the spectrum. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you know, you've got people that will come in and say, look, um, you know, I want a pale ale. What kind of pale ale do you want? Well, I want a pale ale like this and this. And, you know, between the two, there's a, there's a continuum. So there's everything from guys who have been homebrewing themselves uh, and have a recipe and they want to help it, us to help them scale it up. We have a whole product development cycle that people can come in and engage on where they say, I want a beer that has this interesting fruity character, fruity character to it, what can you suggest? So really, we can cater to people that do that really want anything from, here is my recipe, don't change it, I want the beer that I've got in the bottle in front of you, to oh, I have an idea for a beer, and the idea that I'm looking to achieve in this beer is X, Y, and Z, um, and that's what we can work with them to do. We don't have like house-style beers, so we don't have a house-lager house, or house lager that we will just bottle and send out the door. And that's not because we wouldn't do it, but it's just because we don't have a demand for it. Most people in our industry and in our end of the market are looking for kind of something differentiated, so they all want to kind of have a an imprint on making sure that it's unique. I feel as if that kind of house-style product is more probably more applicable to the pub market um, and some of the larger groups if maybe there's an interest in doing that kind of thing. But we don't do it right now. And, um, and yeah, so I mean, the process will walk through, I mean, it can take anything from a few weeks, so you know our product development cycle can be okay. If you really know what you want today, I can have a beer in tank tomorrow if I've got the space for it. To kind of really working with someone through tasting programs and benchmarking, and you know bringing hops and even you know bring, doing small batch brews through the homebrew kits of of our. Of our kind of senior brewers who, you, know, you want to call them homebrew kids, but they're pretty interesting brew kits on a small volume. <laughs> and they'll kind of, yeah, I mean, you can imagine what a head brewer at my facility would have at home. I mean, it's, it's pretty crazy brew set. This, you know, we can even go through that process all the way to, to scheduling your first, you know, kind trial batch, which might be 500, 400 cases of beer and, you know, keg equivalent. And then through to, okay, you know, this is, you know, you, know, you guys have, you know, nailed it. We really like it. Let's move forward. And, you know, here's a schedule of how we want it. That's kind of how the product cycle works in a nutshell.
0: So what's the smallest batch that I could come in and say, you know, can I come in to say, look, I've got a wedding, I want to give the guests a carton of beer to say thank you, you know. Uh, can I have 80 cartons of beer?
2: Yeah, well, I had an Indian wedding and I had 400 guests at mine and we could have easily, easily catered for that on a first batch. But if you've only got 80, 80 people, it's probably a little below where we would be able to provide. So we would start on our, um, on our customers around the, the 500 to 600 mark. For, for their first, you know, commercial scale batch.
0: the Cartons of beer, you, you, you mean?
2: Yeah, cartons. I'm talking, yep. you know, 24, 330s. Yep. Um, and that roughly equates to, say, 40 to 50 hectolitres of beer. And that, you know, coincides pretty squarely with where our brew house can operate at its lowest end. So,
0: and what sort of due diligence uh, do, you, uh, do you go through? Obviously, you know, we, we talked about AIB, which you inherited. There were some uh, players who may not have... Um, you know, who may have contributed to the to the failure. Do you go through and check out their business model before they do it or if they, um, you know, or they they pay up front when, when, they're, when they're first-timers?
2: Yeah, I mean, the commercial terms of how we operate are kind of complex, so we won't get stuck down into that. But from what your perspective is, is do you vet people that you brew beer for? Um, you know, it's a, it's a pretty simplistic model for us. I mean, I don't, you know, for us, so long as the beer can leave here you um, know, in, in, in a form that we find is commercially acceptable. If that's um, if that's paying COD, which it basically is, if that's um, if that's, you know, however it, it leaves here, that's okay with us, so long as you know, from a regulatory standpoint, um, on the excise, you know, this is taken care of. So the, the minimum hurdle that a client would have to make is that they've got, you know, for for example, 4,000 litres of beer, and that's being packaged in a format that we can handle here, and that it leaves the facility. You know, under a commercial arrangement that we're happy with, with the blessing from the ATO. That's basically what we would see as our kind of minimum hurdle. And, I, and that doesn't mean that we're out there providing, you know, beer to mobsters. But that's not the kind of characters that come knocking on our doors and say, Hey, I want, I want, I want to build a brand. So I think that there's kind of a natural due diligence process through the interactions you have with your new clients. But it's not like a formal background checking concept where, you know, I know I know someone's neighbours from when they were high school because they want to make beer with me. Because to be honest, it's not that relevant.
0: And you, uh, you know, as I said, and it certainly wasn't, uh, I, I think you may have felt that I was having a go at you, it certainly was a derogatory, derogatory um, term, but, you know, with, with your very solid background in business, uh, if somebody walks in and they're a little bit <coughs> pie in the sky, um, you know, and, and you can just sort of tell, look, this, this is a guy who's passionate about beer, but, you know, his business model... Um, or his business planning uh, isn't quite up to snuff. Do you sit down with him and sort of uh, you know, give him the benefit of your experience um, to you know, sort of say, look, these are things you maybe need to think
2: of? I mean, is it, is it somebody who's asking me for my opinion? I mean, I'm certainly not going out there offering unsolicited business advice to people who would probably be insulted if I gave it to them. <laughs> I mean, you know, think of it from my perspective. I mean, I like people who come in here with big ambitions and big dreams. I mean, I really I want to be a partner for these guys. I want these partners to grow. If somebody sat down with me and said, oh, I had a conversation like we're having now, which is just generally about the business and what I feel about it, you know, my, my door would be pretty open to that. Um, I mean, I don't. I wouldn't give, like I said, unsolicited business advice because I don't even know if I'm in the best place to give it. To be very frank, but um, but yeah, I mean, if someone said, hey, you know, I've got a, I've got I've got this, I'm thinking of doing that. I mean, I you know, to the extent that I feel as if I could be helpful, you know, I, I would I would do that. But it's kind of a, it might be an odd thing for them to do.
0: And uh, do you, I mean, do do you guys have? Um you know, label designers and packaging designers that you work with that, you know, if I come through and say, look, I've got this great idea for a beer, this is exactly what I want to do, but, you know, I, I don't know the first thing about labeling. Um, do, do you provide those sorts of solutions as well or, do you know, that sort of assistance?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So one thing that we did very early on in our first year is we kind of rolled out a program we could be kind of an end-to-end supplier somebody who wanted to be that way. And, you know, the core concept of that for us is, look, if you come to a contract manufacturer and you want someone to handle the production of your, of your beer, you probably don't want to be having to manage your inventory levels and your labels. You probably don't want to have to be worrying about, um, about when that next shipment of cartons is coming in or if it's going to fit the machine correctly or what have you. So we offer to our clients, it can be an intense solution. And, you know, more and more clients are adopting it because for them, you know, their core concept and what they want to be out in the market and spending their time doing is how do I connect with consumers? How do I create and understand the next generation of products that are going to be great beers that people love to drink? That's what they want to focus on. And so they kind of, the more they want to offload that onto us, you know, we're we're happy to do it, which has benefits for them um, in the form of perhaps better better economies of scale that we can kind of aggregate. And this is a big problem in the beer industry when you're in that very small micro craft level. It's hard to get competitive pricing. And then it also has a, a positive impact for us because in the event that we're controlling it, there's only one throat to choke and that's our own.
0: I, I guess the, the, the last thing that uh, I, I wanted to have a bit of a chat to you about um, is your own brands. Um, not only do you take uh, uh, beers in from others and help them develop their brands, but you've recently, uh, in, in, over the last 12 months, introduced the Stockade brand. So you've, you've got beer on in 40 taps in Sydney at the moment. Uh, you've, you've got a range of beers. You've just released another. Um, what's the, the the business planning behind, behind that? Do you, do, do you risk... Upsetting your uh, your your contract customers.
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's a it's an interesting question. But, so I'd say that the first the first answer to that would be that there there are contract manufacturing organisations here in Australia which are managing their own brand portfolio in parallel with contract manufacturing for others. And it's a, it's a pretty um, you know well traversed area. So it's not easy for the first guys to try and do it. We kicked it off. We kicked off about a year ago, and the reason why we did it is because we had publicans coming to us and asking us for beer, and they wanted to make their own brands. And they were coming out, and they all had very limited um, demand on an individual basis, but we wanted to aggregate them under a label, and that label was stockade, and we kind of grew it organically from there, and what products we continue to offer is really what the market demands. And we're super passionate about it, and, and we love beer, and we love craft beer, and we feel as if it could be a, a great, a great brand over the next five, six years. We really want to grow that. Um, I don't really feel as if it conflicts with our existing portfolio because the two businesses get run very separately from one another other than myself who kind of oversees both. You know, the resources other than production staff and other than, you know, some admin work, it's kind of, it's really, it's run as a very distinct business model. So I don't really see a conflict there. And I think that the concerns that a lot of people had in the very early days is when we took this off is, well, how do you manage your own capacity versus that of, of your contract clients, and you know what happens if and when success comes to you at Stockade, what do you do without these? And I think that you know the answer to that is we just keep investing more in the brewery to grow capacity beyond what we could take ourselves, and we keep cooking up you know grand plans to do things like Golden, which is how we underwrite confidence with our con- with our clients to say look, regardless of what we do on stock A, whether or not stock A becomes you know, the, ne- the best thing since sliced bread and everybody wants to drink it or whether or not it kind of stays as a, as, as a, as a predominantly tap product which obviously we hope it won't, um, we've got capacity and we're focused on this business and we're not moonlighting doing contract manufacturing. This is what we do for a living. This is how we start in this business and so I, I feel as if you know we're doing a pretty good job of judging that today. I mean you know, obviously history will be its own judge but we're, we're doing all the right things now to make sure that that's not a problem well into the future. And, you know, when we when we engage new customers or when we are talking to existing customers, I mean, all of that stuff is done within the lens of making sure that that balancing act stays in check. And I think that last summer, as a great example of that, I mean, last summer we had really tight capacity coming in the peak months, but, you know, all that did for us is it's actually delayed some of the stock-owned product launches that we wanted to have. So we really did put contract clients first in that instance, and that was appreciated by some of our customers set too. Excellent. Uh,
0: mate, look, I... It's been fascinating uh, having a chat to you. I know that we've uh, taken up a, a lot of time. Um, really appreciated your time and your candour. Uh, I guess one last thing is, uh, do you have any favourite beers that you like to drink? You know, Just tell us a little bit about your um, the, the, the styles and the flavours that you like.
2: Yeah, it's funny. I think it's funny, my journey in beer, which is it's not as organic as a home brewer who's been doing this for 20 years, I mean, for me, I, mean, I was drinking American craft beers before I came to Australia. So I already had a flavor of some really interesting beers. But I came here and I started off in the same vein. I think a lot of people do, drinking pale ales, you know, starting to flirt with different types of, of interesting flavors. And as time goes on, I mean, I'm just out there looking for anything I haven't had before. So you know, I, <laughs> I'm on the road sometimes and I'm talking to venues and I'm talking to bottle shops, or what have you, and I'll just buy whatever I haven't had before. And I, I really get a kick out of coming home with a sack of stuff that is totally different and totally unique. And that that is some Australian breweries are doing an amazing job of kicking out great product. Um, and I think that some of overseas breweries, obviously that are finding their way here, are doing a great job. I find it more challenging with overseas breweries because I think it, you know fresh is best. And you know I think that for me, some of the best beers I have. Are um, our, our beers that are just coming off you know our own brewery that day, and that's you know obviously because we all have a great passion for the beers that we make, but also because it's so fresh, it's so good, it's so it's right there, all the flavours are so apparent, it's had none of the of the mistreatment of you know five or six months in Australian heat. I feel like that is you know what I look for. I look for fresh beer, and then I look for interesting styles that I haven't tried before, and that would be everything from red ales to oyster stouts to IPAs to you know, anything, even good European lagers and Belgian triples. I mean, that's stuff that I can appreciate any day of the week. And um, I look forward to, to, to making some of that stuff ourselves for our clients and our own brands and just keep drinking it as it becomes available to me.
0: You brought up that dreaded question of um, you know beer quality as it, as it goes out. So I might just uh, quickly uh, tickle that one for a, a, a second. Do you think that's going to be an issue for craft brewers going forward you know um, we talked about the large brewers uh, or the, the large retailers you talked about the benefits that they have to the industry one thing that they can't be accused of though is necessarily uh, you know being in, in their warehousing and distribution capacity they're not really uh, looking after the beer the, the way it perhaps should be is you know is nationally um, available beer a good thing or do we really need to lift our game in the way that we look after and warehouse our beer
2: yeah, I mean, some of my clients use cold storage for their beers. I think that in the elements that they can control it, they try and preserve that. Some of them don't. I don't personally necessarily see a difference on the shelf when I try those beers to see whether or not someone's doing a better job of keeping flavour characteristic and somebody using it. I think it, a lot goes into what's happening between those two points in time. So if you've got you know, beer which is moving fast and it's being preserved quite, it's being refreshed quite quickly with your inventory builds, I feel as if you've got you a know, pretty good pretty good chance. If you're letting beer sit out there in a warehouse for six months over the summer, you're not really giving it the best chance. Uh, The grand question of how do I feel as if the major retailers run their logistics chains, these are the storing beer in the most optimal conditions. I think that's a challenging question to answer and it's not really my infrastructure nor my gazillions of dollars that would have to upgrade that. So it's not (laughs) my fight to have. Um, I think that you've got this bigger concept of beer quality from what breweries can control. And if you look at the US, it's been a big issue and it's been a really bumpy road. I mean a lot a lot goes into what we do. You know, we don't we don't walk up in the morning and rub our hands together and out of this land comes five thousand cases of beer. I mean a lot of work needs to go into um the entire product the entire brewing process from the very first moment that a forklift grabs a, a sack of grain to when a label on a best before date gets into a bottle and it gets wrapped by a pallet wrapper. All of that process requires very strict controls in order to make sure that you've got great beer consistently. And I think that, you know, as the emergence of these breweries starts to, you know, come forward, you will have patchy and spotty quality issues that aren't necessarily, um, dictated via logistics change of major retailers, which are largely a level playing field if you want a nationally distributed product. It'll be more to do with, you know, have the breweries, you know, started to evolve and started to put in the right production processes in place to ensure that happens. And I know the industry is doing its best to educate and to kind of to get all these breweries up to a a good standard of quality, and we ourselves are always improving as well. But I think that was a critical issue in the US market as it continued to grow, and I think that you'll see that here too. But it's, by and large, probably more growing pains than anything else.
0: It's funny, uh, you know, and that's one of the things that the 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 two big brewers, Lion and CUB, um, really don't get enough credit for. Is you know. Everyone loves to hate on them for uh, what they see as bad business practices, but these guys have been, you know, huge, uh, you know, put a lot into the um, quality of the beer and making sure that the beer that comes out of the tap um, in the retail environment or is bought on the shelf at the retail environment is as good as it can be. And um, for me, that's been as big a driver in their growth and, you know, the, the, the size and dominance that they've had as any of their other business practices. Because, you know, for the same reason that, you know, McDonald's can live outside the Queen Vic markets in, uh, in Melbourne, people know what they're getting. They're getting a certain quality um, and it's going to be the same wherever they go. Craft brewers can't promise that. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of people have been burned buying craft beer in a whole lot of different, uh, you know, outlets. Um, and had a bad experience and uh, gone back to the to the big brewers. So, yeah, look, I, I mean, I, that's probably not something that we should uh, talk about, but it, it, you really have touched on something that I see as being a big contributor in that you know, long-term mega cycle that we uh, keep coming back to.
2: It's not, it's not just sort of the specular that they're, they're knocking out consistent quality beer all the time, which, you know, you've got to take your hats off to those guys because some of them, they're managing production facilities across multiple states and the numbers are mind-boggling. It's also, you know, they have been quite transparent. I mean, I've read a number of white papers that were authored by brew teams of, um, of major breweries that are addressing very specific problems, whether it's yeast propagation rates to um, to, you know, crown failures on bottles. I mean, you've got... And these people, they've, you know, they've... They've had detailed studies done by themselves and bringing in world experts, and they've they've had the you know the the foresight to share that with the industry in the interest of improving the industry's production processes. And I admire that because you know okay. for me, who's a you know although my brewers and my brother and my family has have longer experience in beer than I myself have, I mean it's really great to be able to borrow off 100 years of history and 100 years of expertise when someone's willing to share that. So I have to take my hat off and thank the guys for that.
0: Yeah, and and I, look, I don't think they get enough credit. You know, it, it's too easy. Um, you know, as I said, to hate on them, um, and people don't look at. You know, that it really is a very evenly poised uh, ledger. Um, you know.
2: Look, you can't you can't get you can't have a billion dollar business or a eleven billion dollar business um, without doing some of the right things a lot of the time.
1: Exactly, and yes, I think yes,
2: that you know you can say whatever you like about them, and you can say whatever you like about their beers. But at the end of the day, I mean, these are organizations that have evolved over 100 years and, you know, they're very good at what they do um, and, I, you know, you have to you have to appreciate them as a competitor and you have to admire them as a business because, you know, a lot of these major breweries, whether it's, you know, Lion or Carlton or even Coopers, I mean, you know, they do focus so much on the quality of the liquid. It's exactly what this guy from Carlton United said. I mean, they really care about the quality of the liquid. And they, you know, when it comes to ramping up a facility and ramping down another facility, if they're showing one, they'll blend beers throughout that entire process to ensure that they're having a consistent delivery to their consumers and they're not noticing a difference in the product. I, you know, I mean that's that's a very um, large uh, orchestra to have to to manage on a, on a, on a beat basis, but they managed to pull it off. And I, you know, from somebody who runs a business which is growing and you know all the challenges that come with that, I, I have to admire them for that.
0: Anton Spitalak, thank you, Spitalak, I should say. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, It's it's, it's a harder name uh, as Kirkigard. I'm I'm sure you uh, spend much more time explaining it than even I do.
2: Oh, yes. You would be surprised. It's been a a significant portion of my life, spelling it over the
0: phone. (laughs) Uh, Just do what I do, shorten it to Kirk whenever you order a taxi or Chinese food. But uh, Anton... Thank you very much for being so generous with your time. Thank you very much for your support of uh, Australian Bruce News and particularly Radio Brews News. And uh, hopefully I'll get to sit down and have a stockade with you uh, very, very soon.
2: I would love that. Thanks, Matt. Take care.
0: There you go, Prof. Um, interesting chat. Uh, mega cycles. Uh, what's your thought? You know, the, the point I was making to Anton is, you know, uh, things... W- we have cycles, you know. Uh, you, you look at the music cycle. Uh, you, you had Pat Boone. You have Elvis and the Beatles. Excitement. Then suddenly uh, everyone wants to, you know... The, the Beatles start not playing straight rock and roll. They start experimenting. You've got Sergeant Peppers. And before you know it, you're suddenly in the disco era. Um Craft beer, are there some parallels there? You know, we had boring staid beer. Suddenly, we had little creatures, the you know, uh, Sierra Nevada, those beers. Are we in the Sergeant Pepper's phase of craft brewing?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I think we're probably. Yeah, we've maybe. Look, at the end of the day, there's still uh, there's still a lot of um, Mamma Mia and Dancing Queen out there, but we're also starting to get into a little bit of the stuff from Arrival. That people sort of you know. Don't really remember but if you listen to it it's actually pretty good yep 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 just, just okay to, just to throw in a bit of another um analogy there and I, I, look I, I think it's probably yes it, it, there is and it, it's broader uh perhaps than than can be defined by by music though i'm sure plenty would argue
0: oh that, that was just one of those things because we were talking yeah. about the you know the, the the overarching business cycle exactly um yeah. and, and and how long craft beer um, you know, they're, they're, I think I've said before, um, this too shall pass. We're in a very exciting exciting aspect of beer. Um, beer has arguably changed for good or, you know, we, we aren't going to go back to every beer being a lager for quite some time. No,
1: no, no true. And, and look, to put it in perspective, last week alone I had a uh, a new one, a Bad Boy Bubbly from um, from the guys out at Moondog down here in Melbourne, uh, which is their making a champagne using beer ingredients, and it was just absolutely magnificent. In the same week, you know, I followed up with uh, Four Pines Kosh, which arguably is kind of, I guess, you know, it's it's that 10 overs, none for 40, a, a line and length beer that you can you know, give to just about anyone, and they'll go, oh, this is really nice, but it's not, you know, uh, earth-shattering in terms of its um, big-end flavours and that sort of thing, but it's a beautifully crafted, well-balanced, very drinkable beer. There's room for both of us. And I think, too, as the 18 year olds, you know, kids today turning 18 getting their drinking license, there's a lot more for them. We, we didn't have, we, we had the option of you can go to a, a pub that had Carlton Draft or a pub that had VB down here in Victoria you know, when, when we all turned 18. And there wasn't an option of craft beer. There wasn't even really an option of Coopers. You know, that was something that you, you bought in long necks. In brown paper bags, you know, from um, from the bottle. Um, yep. Nowadays, I think there's a much broader future for craft beer now. Even though, okay, things might be, you know, we're working capacity or we're trying hard to to get new new drinkers to try our beers, but at least they're out there and 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 growing.
0: I'm sometimes accused of having a bleaker view because I look at the. You know, whilst Cooper's is rapidly growing, um, you hear people who are well into the craft beer bubble, you know, uh yeah, Cooper's, you know. It, it, seriously, five years ago in Brisbane, probably a bit longer in maybe some of the other sort of more advanced beer, if you had Cooper's Sparkling in a restaurant, it was a, you know, it almost brought a tear to your eye because you had something, it wasn't just a menu of seven beers with the Crownie being the most expensive. Yeah. Um, and yet,
1: and Guinness, you know, and Guinness being the token ale
0: exactly um, and, and when you take that uh, mindset oh you know there's nothing exciting about Cooper's that's the start of the cycle that sees you know um, when you're always looking for the next big thing and you don't look appreciate the classics that's when they go away um, mm. and uh, again um, it's not really about contracts but that's where you know um, if you just go buying your beer based solely on price um, and yeah you know, look you uh, the, the the big brewers um, are making some amazing beers. Little Creatures Pale Ale, number four in the Hottest 100, is still an amazing beer. Um, and there's no, it's, it's no comment about its quality, but all things being equal, my personal choice is that if I'm in a, a venue that's got um, Little Creatures and another equally good um, pale ale, American-style pale ale, I'll generally choose the equally good um, Australian-made pale ale from a smaller brewery. Because, you know, that's my little, going back to my soapbox earlier, um, that's, you know, my vote for the future. That's statement. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 Um, Yeah. Otherwise, we are going to end up, we we probably won't go back to Carlton Draft and VB, but we will go back to the situation where you have, you know, Kosciuszko, James Squire, Golden Ale, um, you know, Little Creatures Parallel, Napstein, Heineken, and Forex Gold. Um, on, on, on the ten taps, and you know, I, I, again, probably a whole lot of people wouldn't care about that, wouldn't say they're bad things.
1: No, and a whole lot of other people wouldn't know, and, nope. and a whole lot of other people would. So I, I think I think what's really most positive is that um, I think mainstream mainstream beer is losing drinkers every day. I don't think craft is. But craft no. craft drinkers aren't going back to to mainstream because uh, you know. The, Foreign ownership, or because of quality, or I think that you know, there's, there's a positive there.
0: No, but it's actually it's an interesting um, thing, though. You, you, you do see, um, and, and I've seen it with cheese, and sometimes you see it with artisanal breads and things like that. People, you know, who have gotten so bored with the local Brumbies white slice and suddenly try sourdough bread or you know, a whole grain, or and they get all excited, and you know, the, the next six months they're just eating great bread, mm. and then for some reason you know, they'll go and have a Brumbies whole grain or something like that. And they'll go, hey, yeah, you know, actually, this isn't so bad. Um, yeah. And they don't, they don't not go straight back to, to white, but Brumbies is everywhere. It's cheaper. Um, you know, that, that's and same with cheese. You know, the the, the King Island cheeses, um, probably not as, you know, intense a flavor and those things, but it's cheaper and everywhere. Um, and so you, oh, yeah, look, it, 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 it's 80% of what I want, you know, at, um, you know, 50% of the price, you um, I'll go back, and, and that's... I can, that with, was, I can live with my decision. I, I can live with my decision, and that's when you sort of start seeing all of the small artisanal uh, cheesemakers disappearing because they can't do it for that price. Um, and, and that was the business cycle I was talking about with Anton, and I, you know, it was really fascinating to get his insights on it, particularly as somebody that has put some serious skin in the game by uh, investing in a brewery. Yeah,
1: no, it was a good chat and, and uh, a good start to the conversation. Speaking of good chats,
0: it's been great chatting with you. Um, always enjoy it. Uh, thank you very much for coming along. Thank you to our uh, sponsors, Cry, Malt and uh, Brewpack, um, who you've just heard. Um, prof, if people want to, you know, if they haven't had enough of the prof uh, in your musings herein, uh, where can they uh, follow you on Twitter, Facebook, those sorts of places? Yeah, uh,
1: Beer Blokes and, uh, and Pete Mitchum. Pete Mitchum at Facebook and Beerblokes on Twitter. And this week this weekend. This weekend at the um, Great, uh, Great Australian Beer Festival down at Geelong. Geelong, Come and, see and
0: it. Uh, it, it. it's festival season. You've been people have been seeing a lot of the prof around the place. Yeah,
1: yeah, we had out a couple of weeks ago, which was lovely. And uh, then we've got uh, Bendigo coming up on the 28th of March as well. Beautiful. Um, and I'm uh, Matt Kirkgard, best
0: known as uh, Good Beer Matt on Twitter, uh, Beer Mat on I think Good Beer Matt on Facebook. Um, search good beer matt and you'll find me in your favorite uh, social media stream yep prop till next time we've got a couple of uh, we won't say too much because it's always hard to schedule and sometimes you know, our regular loyal guests uh, get upset when we promise somebody and then you know six months later finally trot them out um but we do have some great guests that we're coming on so uh, stay tuned thank you for your support listeners and uh until next time uh, remember drink less drink better drink for flavor and not for effect
1: and drink fresh drink local
0: we should get that on a t-shirt prof. Oh
2: boy, the There's a garden. What a garden.
1: And we're out.